Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode 15. Super exciting. I'm still working on figuring out the best possible format for this show. Um, But as I always say at the end of the episode, if you have any suggestions, the only only suggestions I'm really getting are from my mother, which are super helpful, by the way. But if you have any suggestions on how I can improve the show, um, please let me know. Send me a Gmail at crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com. I'm thinking in the new year, um, or at least over the holidays, I'm going to research some potentially better audio uh, recording tools. Uh, One of the issues that I do find is having a little puppy who likes to run around the apartment and click his little toenails or snores um, can, can create some disturbances and also just being in a, in an apartment in the city. But I'm doing my best to make sure the audio sounds good, but I'm also going to be thinking about, again, just how how I can make the um, stories that I share more palatable to the audience. So again, if you have any suggestions, let me know. I can take the constructive criticism. However, mind you, this is a total DIY operation, and this is only episode 15, so bear with me a little bit. But anyway, let's dive into today's case. Okay, so on today's case, we're covering the bizarre story of Matthew Hoffman, a 30-year-old unemployed ex-con who in 2010 killed 32-year-old Tina Herman, her 11-year-old son Cody Maynard, and Herman's best friend and neighbor, 41-year-old Stephanie Spring. The family dog was also murdered. Additionally, he kidnapped Tina's 13-year-old daughter, Sarah Maynard, and sexually assaulted her and held her hostage until authorities raided his home near downtown Mount Vernon, Ohio, at about 8 a.m. the following Sunday and rescued her. This is a case that I initially became aware of actually through My Favorite Murder, which is, of course, a very famous uh, true crime podcast. Um, they, I want to say they covered this in the earlier stages. I will be honest, I haven't listened to MFM in a long time, but I do remember this case haunted me. I believe Karen had covered it. And one of the things that I will do, which I think is super important, is suggest that you look up pictures from this case. It's so scary. It's so creepy. Um, not particularly gory at all, but you'll find out why. But I think you need to Google Matthew Hoffman's uh, Mount Vernon home in Ohio, and it just will give you the shivers. And I'll go into that a little bit more shortly. But I will say there is not a ton of information regarding Matthew Hoffman's early life. We do know that he was born on November 1st, 1980, and that in August of 2000, when he was 20, he set fire to a townhome in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And he did this to try to cover up for burglary and auto theft. No one was killed, fortunately, but the the fire did spread to adjoining units, and this caused about $2 million in damages. And for this crime, he was found guilty and sentenced to an eight-year term. So already had a criminal background, 
and a plumbing contractor in Steamboat named Scott Barnes, who actually hired Matthew to work for him, recalled the kidnapping suspect as a quiet young man with a very weak personality who was a little on the strange side and someone that you could call a follower. And during this time, he was living in a transient hotel in Steamboat. And after about three months of Matthew working for Scott, he just stopped showing up for work. And this was about a week or two before the fire occurred. So definitely a strange guy. Um, By, and I'm, you know, again, it's hard to sort of trace his movements, but by um, 2010, he was living in a lower middle class neighborhood in Mount Vernon, Ohio. He had moved in a year before with a girlfriend and her son, but they moved out after an incident where Matthew choked her. I don't know if she pressed charges, but obviously she got the F out of there, which is good for her because clearly this is a a very unhinged individual and things escalate quickly. Matthew was living in a house with green shutters and a front door and a large television antenna on the roof. Apparently the porch was really weathered and there was holly growing through the slats and a sheet covered one of the windows and blinds were pulled down on the rest. So kind of an indicator for somebody that's not exactly sociable and you wonder what's going on inside. And neighbors would describe his behavior as erratic and strange. According to one of them, he would kill squirrels and eat them because apparently he didn't want a grocery shop. Others say he also used to trap small animals in his yard, set small fires on the lawn, and just sit in his trees. He would also walk to Foundation Park almost every day and would collect leaves. Remember that in a bit. One neighbor, Henderson Butcher, described his interactions with Hoffman as mostly friendly. He said that Matthew used to play around the trees around there a lot and would throw ropes in the trees to create a hammock for himself to basically lay in. His next-door neighbor, Donna Davis, would tell her children to stay indoors whenever Matthew was out. She said that he would sit in his hammock in the trees and listen to her family talking. She said he was just different. He was very different. At the time of the crime, Matthew's life was a complete mess. Obviously, his house was in disarray, and he was an out-of-work tree trimmer and collecting unemployment. His car was also in the process of being repossessed. So not exactly a high flyer right here, and clearly he creeped his neighbors out to no end, even if he gave a facade of being friendly. So on November 9, 2010, Matthew had chosen the house he wanted to burglarize, And as mentioned previously, this was something that he had experience with. So he spent the night in the woods across from Tina Herman's isolated split-level house in Knox County, which was about 10 miles away from his home. He bundled up in a sleeping bag to ward off the cold that November night and watched. Sometime after 9 a.m. the next morning, he saw Tina Herman leave the house. He sneaked across the road and slipped under the overhead garage door, which wasn't completely closed. He remained inside for an hour until Tina and her neighbor and friend, Stephanie Spring, unexpectedly returned together. Surprised, Hoffman murdered them both by stabbing them in the chest and back with a knife he brought along during the home invasion, which he later claimed was simply to intimidate. He also killed the family dog because it was barking loudly, and he didn't want to alert neighbors. He was in the middle of what he called, quote, processing the bodies in the home's bathroom when Tina's two children, 13-year-old Sarah and 11-year-old Cody, returned from school. 
they surprised him too. According to Hoffman, Sarah ran to her room and he killed Cody right inside the front door. Now when he says processing, that to me indicates that he's thinking of these people as animals, right? And the knife um, that he brought was called a blackjack knife, which I looked up and apparently that's a classic hunting knife. So when he says that it was for intimidation, but then refers to processing the bodies, I, you know, that's hard to believe that it was just for intimidation. This is somebody that dehumanized these poor people. Using an electrical cord from a fan, he tied Sarah up and left her in the kitchen. Apparently, she never saw the rest of the house and all of the blood, so she was not aware of what had happened to earlier to the others, including her mother. Hoffman left the house in Stephanie Springs Jeep Cherokee with the bodies and Sarah loaded inside. My guess is, is that he had covered her eyes or somehow made it so that she was not aware of what was going on fully or the fact that she was loaded alongside the dead bodies. Um, I couldn't find information about that, but how terrifying for her. He left Sarah tied to a bed of leaves in the basement of his Mount Vernon home 10 miles away. And that night, he took the other bodies to the Kokosing wildlife area, which I guess he would visit anyway. At various times, he used several vehicles. He used his own, he used Tina Herman's Ford pickup truck, and Stephanie Springs' Jeep to move around. He walked from location to location twice as well, and once rode his bike. Now you may be asking why so many trips. Well, he'd been dismembering the bodies and depositing them a few at a time in a hollow 60-foot tree in that wildlife area, using the pulley equipment from his job as a tree trimmer. Can you imagine? The next morning, Tina Herman's boss went by her home when she didn't show up to her shift at the Dairy Queen. Her boss had contacted police upon seeing blood at the home, and a full-scale missing person investigation was launched with the entire community offering up help to search for the family. Footprints outside the Herman house led investigators to believe that someone, a woman or a girl with a size 7.5 shoe, had left the house alive with an attacker. So I'm wondering then if he actually walked her out, but maybe kept her eyes covered. Now that evening, Matthew Hoffman went to a bike trail near, near Kenyon College where he had left Herman's pickup. He intended to take the truck back to the Herman house and then burn the place down. But the police were there. They had no reason yet to suspect him, but a deputy questioned him anyway. He told the deputy he was waiting for his girlfriend to get off work at the nearby Kenyon Inn. They let him go, and for the next four days, he repeatedly raped poor Sarah. Now, the break in the case that led to the discovery of Sarah in Hoffman's home was a Walmart bag containing a tarp and trash bags that he had left behind in Tina Herman's house. Using the barcode from the items at the store, investigators were able to locate the transaction involving their purchase and then match it to a surveillance video of a man who bought the items. Videos showed him driving away in a Toyota Yaris. So investigators then, of course, ran a database search for the Yaris and all vehicles in the area matching that description, and Hoffman's name appeared among those driving the model. And since a deputy had already spoken to him in the area where Tina's stolen pickup truck was found, he immediately became a prime suspect. The following Sunday, on November 14th at about 8 a.m. in the morning, police raided his house. The first SWAT officer, Mount Vernon Police Detective Craig Feeney, and his partner burst through the front door of the home. 
They tossed in a flash grenade to surprise, disorient, and stun Matthew, who was inside sleeping on the couch. Feeney said, We plowed our way through the smoke and saw something on the couch. We yanked him to the floor, and he said, What's going on? And I said, You tell me. But he was done talking. Even though that initial rush to the door took only seconds, something besides Hoffman immediately caught Feeney's eyes. The floor of the room to the right of the front door was covered with leaves. And this is where I'm going to ask you to go ahead and Google Matt Hoff- Matthew Hoffman, Ohio house. There are bags on bags on bags, grocery bags, like Meyer bags, filled with leaves, like plastering the walls all over the floor. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of bags. It is the scariest, creepiest thing I've ever seen, ever. And I have never heard of something quite like this. But luckily, police safely recovered Sarah from the basement. According to case files, she was wearing a white plastic bag that had holes cut out for her legs, basically like a makeshift diaper. Moments after her rescue, Sarah told police that she was late for school and asked if they could take her to school, which is so sad. And unaware that Hoffman had murdered her mother and brother, she told police that she feared that he'd killed the family dog and told them that Hoffman cut her finger with a knife and usually gagged her and that he said he was going to release her before Christmas to her family. There were plenty more eerie discoveries in Matthew's home. The freezer in the kitchen held two unskinned squirrels, red popsicles, and little else. So basically, he has red popsicles and squirrel popsicles. Gross. Some walls and door jams were covered with doodles, the kind a teenage girl would scratch on a notebook cover. There's a giant P sign on the door, stars on the wall, and random names written in a marker. The leaf-filled bathroom had black doodles scrawled on the white tub, including a jack-o'-lantern. And I will post a picture of these two. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this was maybe a previous person or perhaps the child of uh, Matthew's girlfriend. I'm really not sure, but it's very creepy nonetheless. Now, just as Hoffman didn't have anything to say the morning of his arrest, his attitude didn't change much when authorities got their first crack at questioning him. In videos of the first marathon interview session at the Knox County Sheriff's Office, Matthew sat slumped over and ignored the questions But after 15 minutes, he raised his cuffed hands and thumped his chest with a fist. He he motioned as if breaking something. Detective Sergeant Roger Brown asked him, heartbroken, because of what happened? Hoffman shook his head no. Someone broke your heart? He didn't answer. He didn't say a single word until the tape ran out on the interview four hours later. In the following days, hundreds of searchers combed rural Knox County looking for the bodies. Matthew still wouldn't talk. But on Tuesday, November 16th, he opened up a little bit to Special Agent Joe Dietz of the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation, off-camera in a single-stall restroom, according to case files. Matthew asked Dietz if he was recording what he said, and when the agent said no, He said that he'd had a nightmare the night before, his second in a jail cell where he was on suicide watch. Hoffman dreamed that he was at a food processing plant and that he opened a trash bag filled with dismembered body parts. 
He wanted to tell the detectives what had happened, he told the agent, but on his own terms. He would write down the locations of the bodies for a lawyer. Then he would escape, and the special agent would shoot and kill him. Only after he was dead could the lawyer say where the bodies were. This indicates that Matthew wanted to control the release of information. The agent wrote in his report, Hoffman said he could not live with what he had done and that if this could not be agreed to, he would kill himself in jail. He said that he did not want to be injected with Thorazine, which is a drug to treat schizophrenia for the rest of his life in prison, and wanted to end his life. He also called himself a monster. But obviously, Dietz wouldn't go along with this plan. And later, Hoffman said he made up the story and didn't know where the bodies were. So back to square one. Fortunately, two days later, he changed his mind when Knox County Prosecutor John Thatcher told him that he wouldn't seek the death sentence if he would reveal the location of the bodies and if he would give a full written confession. Matthew says he panicked when the women and children surprised him during a burglary. He said he wanted to return and burn the house down after he'd robbed it. And even though he coldly recounts the murders, he goes out of his way, interestingly, to show how compassionate and kind he was to Sarah, in his view. He claims he let her play Wii video games, that they watched the first and second Iron Man movies together, and how he gave her a copy of the novel Treasure Island to pass the time. He says he cooked hamburgers for her and slept with his arm around her. He also promised her that she would be okay and that she'd be home playing with her family by Christmas. He showed her the definition of ransom in a dictionary and told her that he was negotiating with, his, with her family. He wrote in his confession, I would not have hurt her. I could not hurt her. I planned on giving her more and more freedom until she ran away. But in actuality, Sarah's family was dead. She had been repeatedly raped and tied to a makeshift bed of leaves and blankets in a dark, dank corner of his creepy basement, which was barricaded by a sewing cabinet, so I'm not really sure how she could have run away. He finally directed investigators to that 60-foot-tall hollow tree in the Kokosing Wildlife Area near Fredericktown. Inside the tree, detectives found the mutilated bodies of Tina, Stephanie, Kobe, and the remains of the family dog. He told authorities how he had used his rig and pulley system to drop the bodies inside. Now let's talk about the leaves for a minute. Hopefully you had a chance to look at the pictures. But forensic psychologists said that Hoffman's obsession with leaves and trees were indications of mental illness and delusion. And this particular obsession with leaves is pretty unheard of. I've never heard of a single other case like this. According to Dr. James Allen Fox of Northeastern University, who has written five books about serial killers, if trees gave him comfort at all, and were familiar at all, that would explain why he put the bodies in the tree. And Dr. N.G. Barrell, director of New York Center for Neuropsychology and Forensic Behavioral Science, believes, quote, it certainly suggests that he is likely to be mentally ill. Mentally ill is compared to other killers who show up in the news, like serial killers or psychopaths. Serial killers, from a professional point of view, they are not mentally ill. They have character disturbances, but they know what they're doing is wrong. They take too much pleasure, too much gratification to stop. He also said that it would take talking to him to find out what it means. His delusions are very elaborate delusions related to trees, what trees produce, being in and around trees, and putting people in trees. And think about it, guys. I mean, this is somebody that's collecting leaves that literally hangs out in the tops of trees like he's Tarzan or something, like a creepy Tarzan. And he buried, he put 
dismembered bodies of a family in a 60-foot tree hollow. That takes tremendous amount of work. So yes, I would say there's some mental illness going on. However, I do believe that he does know the difference between right and wrong because think about his confession. He calls himself a monster. He tried to um, escape attention from investigators. I mean, this is a person that, while sloppily, definitely wanted to avoid capture because he knew what he was doing was wrong. So despite even his confession where he talks about how well he treated Sarah, I mean, that's to try to mitigate, I think, the circumstances. But he knows he did wrong. So Matthew acknowledged his guilt on January 6, 2011, in a courtroom packed with relatives and friends of the victims, albeit without any emotion, and he looked disheveled with his hair messy. He had been held in lieu of one million cash bond, charged with three counts of aggravated murder, rape, aggravated burglary, as well as kidnapping, tampering with evidence, and abuse of a corpse. He was ultimately sentenced by Knox County Common Pleas Court Judge Otho Eister to concurrent terms of life in prison with no chance of parole. In a statement read by Knox County Prosecutor John Thatcher, Sarah said, This has changed my whole life and my family's too. She also related memories of the victims and said she's no longer scared of Hoffman. He received nine years each for his guilty pleas and 11 months for abuse of a corpse. The sentences will run concurrent with the life sentences for murder. Larry Maynard, the father of Cody and Sarah, read the confession. He said he doesn't believe most of Matthew's story about how he cared for Sarah. Why would he tell us the truth? Why would he even care? Even from behind bars, he's still controlling the situation. Sarah went back to school and worked with therapists to deal with her trauma. Meanwhile, in prison, Matthew never asked for forgiveness or said he was sorry. In his confession, he said, I did not enter the house to kill those people. I did not know a single one of them. I did not know their names. I did not know who all lived at the house, and I did not plan for any of this to happen. Thatcher, the prosecutor, said he believes Hoffman's story that the home was chosen at random and that it was a burglary gone very, very wrong. I actually agree with that. I don't think that this was a targeted house other than he just saw a house. I don't think it was the family that drew his attention, although we don't know because his neighbor, next door neighbor, said that he would sort of observe and listen and survey their family. So it's possible maybe he saw Sarah. But at the same time, you know, this seems like a very disorganized um, killer. So I tend to believe what the prosecutor says, that it was a bit of a random killing, which to me makes this even more frightening. Um, Larry Maynard really, though, encapsulates the truth by saying, a thief steals and a murderer kills. He's just a monster. He's the closest thing to the devil I've ever seen. So that is the story of Matthew Hoffman. And again, he's sitting in prison. I just, you know, you look at the pictures of him and there's just nothing behind the eyes, like totally void of emotion, of empathy, of compassion. Um, very, I mean, and, and if you really think about this whole case, I mean, this is a manipulative person, you know, whether or not there was mental illness in play, like he definitely, I truly believe, knew right from wrong. And I can't even imagine, you know, Sarah, it sounds like she's thriving. Apparently she is, um, she finds a lot of comfort in, you know, her remaining family and faith, which is fantastic. And I really hope that she's thriving and flourishing because what a way to, you know, begin your teenage years with your family basically being annihilated and, and 
being sexually assaulted and kidnapped and not knowing what's happening and and then having to find out that your family was murdered um, after the fact, right? I mean, it's just absolutely horrific. So I hope that young lady is 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 taking care of herself and being kind to herself and and out there thriving while Matthew rots in prison where he belongs. <laughs> Okay, and now for something beautiful. Okay, so I know I recently did the L'Oreal Voluminous Mascara, which I still stand by, but I have to tell you guys, I recently received the Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara in, uh, for a holiday gift, and it's totally a game changer. It's an award-winning, best-selling mascara, which is made in the USA, and basically it transforms every single lash with stay-all-day dramatic length, definition, and curl. And it creates this look of lash extensions without the glue. It comes in both rich black and brown black, and it has a high performance formula, which I'll cover in terms of ingredients shortly, but it really is pretty outstanding. I mean, it looks very healthy. It looks, makes lashes look longer. And they've, you probably actually seen them advertised all over Instagram or maybe Facebook as well. If you're still, you know, one of those that use that, which I do because I'm old. Um, they've won the Allure, uh, 2020 Best of Beauty Awards for Best Tubing Mascara, and I love Allure's, um, beauty awards list. I always look at and see what they pick. I think that they do a great job. Same with, um, Glamour's Best Clean Beauty Products of 2020 Award for the Best Mascara. They also won the Prevention Beauty Awards for 2019 for Best Mascara, and they have over, let's see, 275,000, um, 275, thousand five-star reviews on ipsy as of april 2020 so not too shabby thrive and so basically what you do you obviously apply it like a regular mascara however they recommend that you coat both sides just to really define um, from root to tip and really make that length show um, the one thing about this mascara that I will say, the removal is a little bit different and kind of weird at first, but you get used to it. It kind of comes off in clumps. And by that, I mean, when you basically, I use, so when I remove my eye makeup, I use Bioderma and cotton rounds. Um, and what I would recommend is using like a downward sweeping motion. So like close your eyes and sort of sweep that down and it sort of pills and comes off. So normally you kind of, it just comes off in like streaks, but this, this actually pills. So, I mean, it doesn't really matter, but it may take a few more cotton rounds to take off. But they say you can also rinse it off with water and a washcloth with that downward sweeping motion, but that's how I do it. So um, let's talk quickly about the key ingredients because I think that that's more and more important these days in the beauty world. So they have a copyright orchid stem cell complex, which helps stimulate and support longer, healthier looking lashes over time a copyright flake-free tubing technology, which combines rejuvenating Korean pask flower extract, extract and ultra-flexible film-forming polymers to dramatically lengthen and fortify every lash from root to tip, a copyright youth B5 complex, which features a combination of vitamin B5, sodium hyaluronate to moisturize and strengthen lashes, and finally, some castor seed oil and shea butter, which deeply conditions the lashes. And this is 100% vegan and cruelty-free without parabens, flaylates, sulfates, and fragrance. So probably very good for those with sensitive skin and that care about that sort of thing. Um, and I also want to say that one of the things that I love about this product, and 
They are called Thrive Cosmetics, so C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, because actually every product that you purchase, they donate to help a woman thrive, whether it be emerging from homelessness, surviving domestic abuse, fighting cancer, or adjusting to life outside the uniform for those women veterans during and after um, military service. So that is amazing. I mean, you know, if you're going to look beautiful, let's do something else beautiful for the world, right? And I, I love the idea of a cosmetic company supporting women. So, um, and beyond that, I mean, this product does what it says. It really makes lashes look longer and fuller than, um, more so than just a normal mascara. It's a great solution, though, for those that are just uncomfortable applying falsies but want that big lash look. So I have been really enjoying it. I think I will purchase the brown black as well next for a bit of a more daytime um, subtle look because I will say these pack a punch. <laughs> the rich black packs a punch. And some people love that. And I have, you know, I totally get that. But for me personally, I tend to like the um, the brown black. So I might do that for a daytime and then have the black for um, nighttime. But absolutely beautiful. Check them out on the website, thrivecosmetics.com. And I'm sure, again, you can find them on all Instagram and social medias because they've definitely been um, advertised quite heavily there. So um, believe the hype. Check them out. All right, you guys, thank you so much for tuning in to episode 15 about Matthew Hoffman, the creepiest leaf man on the planet. Check out those pictures. They are truly spine tinglingly creepy um also check out thrive cosmetics i am interested in learning more about other products there but that mascara though get into it and as far as where you can listen to crime and beauty episodes you can listen on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify amazon music audible um, crimeandbeauty.podbean.com and Please um, share reviews, rate review, send me emails. As I said on the top of the episode, I would love to get feedback. So kind of trying to really push to revamp, if you will, for the new year and see what people are thinking. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Happy holidays and stay beautiful.